This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest with the very best. And on that note, it's time for another episode of Mastermind with Julia Lee and my equity buddy, Ren. So, how are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. How are you? I'm very excited. Uh, it's this, that special time of month where we have the pleasure of sitting down with Julia Lee and chatting specific stocks that have been on our watch list or have piqued our interest over the last month. So we have Julia on the line now. Welcome again and thanks for joining us, Julia. Thanks. Always a pleasure. So for those that have just joined the show, a massive welcome. Welcome to the journey of learning to invest and no better episode for you to join tonight. Julia is portfolio manager at uh, Berman Invest, stock picker extraordinaire, and we're very excited to have her on for what is now uh, mastermind number four, I think. Is that right, Ren? Number three, I think. Yeah, I was only, I wasn't here for the first one and I've only been here for one. So unless you and Julia have done another one without me, I'm pretty sure yeah, this is number three. <laughs> <laughs> To explain uh, how these episodes work for, for everyone that's just joined the show each month or thereabouts, uh, Ren, Julia and myself come together and we each pitch a stock that we think is either interesting, has some merit behind it, it's a good trade opportunity, um, whatever it may be, it may have piqued our interest over the last month or so. The idea is that we really learn from from Julia and also each other on, on the way of uh, exposing different ways of uh, thinking about companies and stocks and, and ways of going about researching them as well. Obviously, note that this is no way a buy, hold or sell recommendation on any of the stocks and doing your own research is very critical. Um, so, this is just general information and discussion only. But we're here to learn from Julia and uh, on your thoughts. And we've got a bit of a different episode tonight, uh, Julia. You've stuck with the Australian theme. Ren's gone with America and I've gone with a, a stock trade idea rather than um, a company itself. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, diverse. Uh, is anyone willing to uh, kick off tonight? Who wants to take it away? I'll go first. 
Okay, Julia. Well, you know, it's August and they say that this is Christmas for stock analysts. And the reason why is because it gives us so much um, and it gives us an insight into trends that are continuing, starting or um, companies that are seeing some sort of structural change. So really, I use reporting season to try and cement down my investment strategy at least over the next six months, if not the next 12 months. And I've actually crunched some numbers for you to demonstrate how important reporting season can be. So the last full year reporting season was in August 2018. And what I did was I took the 10 best performers in the benchmark ASX 200 index and the 10 worst performers. Now, most people, when they see a bunch of stocks returning 31% on average for the month, which was the case for the top 10 performing stocks in August last they get scared off. They think, you know, it's run too fast, it's run too hard, and it's going to give up some ground. On the flip side, when they see the worst performing list and the 10 worst performing back in August last year lost 20% in value, they think it's bargain hunting time. These stocks are on sale. But actually, when I went back and had a look, the 10 best performing stocks, which gained about 31% in August last year, continued to gain another 17% on average from the end of August to the beginning of this reporting season, so the end of July, while the worst 10 lost 20% in August and lost another 15% from the end of reporting season last year to the beginning of reporting season this year. Not only that, the bottom 10, seven out of those 10 lost more ground. So that means that it's much easier to pick the best performers for the next six to 12 months from the best performing list rather than the worst performing list. And I went back and I did the February reporting season this year as well. And that's a half year reporting season. And the same type of numbers, the 10 best performing stocks in February alone turned an average of 35%. They went on to gain another 13% from the end of February to the beginning of this reporting season. The worst 10 lost 22% for the month of February and then was pretty steady just up by 1% from February to August this year. So um, yeah, hopefully this reporting season you keep an eye out for the winners because generally it's the winners that keep on winning and the losers that keep on losing. It's a really interesting piece of analysis there, Julia. And as we were talking before on uh, before the show, Ren and I just recently did an episode on the reporting season and how it does present opportunity for investors, as you said, A, to, I guess, cement their strategy and, and review their thesis on on companies based on, on the reports that are coming out. But we also, and this is where I'm keen to sort of talk about our views on it, we also see it as a not an opportunity to really panic if stocks do start falling just based on, on uh, I guess, market sentiment, because we know in reporting season, often whatever is reported is matched against a market analyst expectation. And if the expectation isn't met, then it gets slammed either way up or down, right? So with that in mind, is your strategy when it comes to reporting season to buy into these stocks that are up X percentage? Or how do you work that that analysis into your buying and selling strategy? Well, I believe that most things in life move in cycles, whether it's life or relationships or stocks. So when it comes to stocks, I'm looking for those type of cycles, which are starting to see um, some positive signs coming through. So really, I'm looking to avoid those cycles with negative momentum in terms of earnings. 
and ride those ones with a positive tailwind behind them in terms of their underlying business. So to give you an example, today we heard from Blue Scope Steel and they said that steel the steel margins um, are still going away on their first half earnings. So that's going to be a negative in terms of their earnings outlook. So for me, that just cements that this stock is still caught in a downgrade earnings cycle. And until that turns, I'm going to avoid it because I don't like being caught in things that move downwards when it comes to my money. So how do you treat stocks that are, have positive momentum but never meet, well, often don't meet market expectation and suffer on in share price? Does that bother you? Uh, it does, I, but I guess it depends on how much is already priced into the stock. And I guess the weird thing about reporting season is sometimes you'll see a company come out with a record profit that's increased by 100% and yet you see the share price fall and you kind of yeah. wonder, you know, what's happening there? But what if, you know, the market had been expecting that company to increase its profit by 200% and it came out and announced to the market that would it would only increase, that it only grew its profit by 100%. Would the share price adjust upwards or downwards? In this case, the share price would adjust downwards. So it is all about expectations, what's built into the share price and how the share price reacts. Having said that, generally as a stock investor, I want those companies that consistently have positive catalysts. These are companies that under-promise and over-deliver and continue to be in a trend like that. That instills confidence in not only the investors that um, invest in the company, but also the analysts that cover the stock. So I like to see a number of things. I like to see positive catalysts. I like to see an upgrade cycle. And generally, if a company is, I guess, under uh, research, that's a positive there as well. So with that in mind, is there anything uh, that is interesting from a, a point of view of reporting season right now for you? Yeah, well, a stock of like for uh, pretty much the last 12 to 18 months is a stock called Baby Bunting. Now, um, yeah. this is a stock. <laughs> the reason I like this stock at this time, um, and I think that's an important thing about investing. You can be right in your um, forecasts and your assumptions, but maybe in the wrong time frame and still lose money. And that's the funny thing about the market. Sometimes it's not about just making the right call, but it's making the right call at the right time. And for baby bunting, the reason why it's doing so well is that all of its major competitors have gone bust. All of the four biggest competitors in the market went bust around about a year ago. Now, initially that has a negative impact. So when you see major competitors going bust, what they do is they try and get rid of all their stock. So you get a fire sale and that means margins are compressed and sales don't look great. But once the fire sale period has passed, then you have this lovely period where there's little competition and maybe bunting is in that sort of scenario at the moment. So when you analyze retail type of concepts, so retail stores, what I always look for is a combination of strong organic growth together with a rollout of new stores and to me that's a winning combination that creates value and it creates value in the business. So this reporting season has shown that the growth in baby bunting isn't over with strong growth and a rollout of stores is likely to support that continued rise in share price. In fact, in the current financial year, earnings are likely to grow by more than 30% 
And, you know, I have to say that's a strange anomaly in the retail space. The retail space is really tough at the moment. So to see such a winning formula in such a weak type of retail environment, I think, is positive. And I guess when you think about it, um, things like prams, I don't know if you've ever been pram shopping, but... These are feats of engineering, I tell you. These things, you know, can often cost $1,000 to $1,500. And not only that, unless you actually go to the store and see someone demonstrate it for you, they can be impossible to figure out how to open and close. I mean, they're pretty complicated things. So most people, when it comes to buying these big ticket items, they want to try it out themselves. They want to learn. They want to figure it out before they make their purchase. And that's why I think Baby Bunting is pretty resilient from online competition, although it is growing its online sales. But I think there's an advantage in that people do want to see, feel, and try out a lot of these big ticket items before they buy. I think the thing to watch out for next is a potential upgrade to their long-term guidance of hitting 80 stores and that would be another positive catalyst for the share price. I'm always looking to see what could be the next positive catalyst for the share price to continue to improve. That was a lot, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. I think... um our listeners will be pretty familiar with Baby Bunting, as as we mentioned. It's uh, been my stock pick of 2019, and oh yay, um, high five! <laughs> I know. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't put my money where my mouth oh, is on no. this one. <laughs> I know, I know, kicking myself, but maybe it's not too late. I'm not sure. What I'm interested in, I'm sure Ren's also got some comments or questions. But as you said, you know, they're planning to roll out to 80 stores or so, and. And I think that would be important in, I, I guess my, my comment is I'm interested to see if they're just, if this growth is purely just riding on the back of the fact that there's really no other options and all their competitors have, have fallen by the wayside, or if they are, um, you know, running their business well and, and um, giving what their customers really want. And I think we won't really understand that until, you know, a, a further on down the track. Yeah, I think um, Amazon's a pretty big competitor um, when it comes to online sales because Amazon is here in Australia and it has started to sell some of those uh, big brand names like Bugaboo and yet despite that, Baby Bunting is performing pretty well. So I think that speaks to, I guess, the market wanting to try out these products and you can't really try out Amazon products, although you can see the reviews. So look... I think baby bunting is on a winning formula for at least the next couple of years. Yeah, nice. Ren, do you have anything? Yeah, so Julia, on that, um, I guess part part of baby bunting's appeal is the fact that all of its competitors no longer exist. I think something like 70 stores worth of competition have folded in F18 and F19. But you could also look at that and say maybe these other retailers are the canary in the coal mine and maybe there's something structurally wrong with the industry and baby bunting may be the fifth specialty baby goods retailer to collapse. When you look at something like that, an industry going through massive disruption, what what were the key things that you were looking at to say uh, baby bunting is either going to go the way of its competitors or avoid the fate of its competitors? I think one of the things is I, I do like to go and physically visit the stores. And if you go to Baby Bunting, they generally tend to be large warehouse where you can pick up everything. There's lots of rooms and aisles for you to try out prams, 
and generally you see a lot of people in terms of those stores as well. So um, something like Baby Bounce, where I think in the last year four stores have closed down. I don't see any Baby Bounce stores. I just I, I can't remember the last one I saw. Um, but definitely there is something about stocking the right type of brands if you've got any specialty distribution um, agreements that's always a positive as well but I guess it's like comparing let's say Bunnings to Masters Um, Masters wasn't good because of the type of items that it stocked its store layout wasn't very friendly so there's a number of things that makes a retail success story so I think it is important to physically go to the stores have a look around see how many people are using the stores um, whether they're happy how many people at the checkout and have a look at the user experience and see whether it's positive or not but I think when it comes to stores like this it is all about the brands and then once you have a loyal base it can be about bringing in your own brand to try and increase your margins um, and hence increase sales. Will your position change on it, do you think, if they don't hit their 80 store rollout as planned? Oh, absolutely. Um, When something changes, I don't think that hope is a great investment strategy. So as if something crucial like that occurs, that would make me reevaluate the stock and reevaluate the valuation that I have on that company. And to me, that would be a strong signal that perhaps the upgrade cycle is over. And generally, the strongest investments in my portfolio are those stocks in the upgrade cycle. And as soon as there's any signs that that could be coming to an end or is coming to an end, then generally I exit very quickly. Um, there's a rule in the market that it's okay to sell as long as you sell early. And for me, I'm constantly looking for companies that are in an upgrade cycle and trying to avoid those ones that are either moving into a downgrade cycle or are stuck in a downgrade cycle. Do you have a valuation on it? I mean, you don't have to share, but is it looking like it's a decent valuation at the moment or are you buying it from a growth growth perspective? Buying it from a growth perspective, I think it has further to go. Um, as, as long as that strong organic growth continues to come through together with the rollout of stores, um, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, if you think of something like Premier Investments, which also had a very strong organic growth and rollout story, especially around uh, brands like Smiggles. Um, That came to an end really with the UK Brexit story and where their store rollouts had to really slow down and be suspended and that strong organic growth really started to disappear as well. So with Baby Bunting, it's the opposite. They've just started that combination of strong organic growth together with the rollout of stores. But any signs of either of those two factors faltering, and I would be re-evaluating the stock and re-evaluating the valuation on that stock. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Julia, one thing that I'm really interested in with bricks and mortar retailers these days is their move into online retail. And we saw in Baby Bunting's full year results that their online sales penetration has moved to 11% of their total sales. Do you have a view on where the online business fits into the broader business and the broader growth story there? Sure. I think when you have a loyal customer base, that online store um, just acts like another shop. So if you don't have the chance to visit Alexandria or somewhere else, then you can just visit the online store. I do think um, with a company like Baby Bunting, though, the bricks and mortar model works well. And that's because you get to test out the products before you buy rather than just an online presence. Having said that, there are a number of other companies out there in the retail space which only have bricks and mortar and there's no online presence and yet they've still managed to uh, not only see great organic growth but strong store rollouts as well. And the other one that comes to mind is Levisa. L-O-V is the stock code there. So just because we are seeing this shift from bricks to clicks doesn't necessarily mean that bricks and mortar is dead and in certain specialty areas we are seeing that bricks and clicks is still working as a model and seeing not only strong growth but strong store rollouts as well. Do you you worry that they're cannibalizing their more profitable in-store sales with this focus on online? That is a good point and one of the things when I do follow a retail company is I do sign up for their catalogue and if I do see too many sales then that's a big warning sign for me and that was one of the catalysts for um, me getting out of Blackmore's a while ago was when I noticed that um, in those chemist warehouse catalogues that we were seeing some very strong discounting, not only of Blackmore's vitamins, which were often 50% off, but also its competitor, Swiss, which frequently has 50% off sales as well. Um, And this is tended to be the case a lot of the time. So for me, that pointed to a difficult competitive environment and also a decrease in margins because of the um, discounting that was happening. And I, I look for that, whether it's retail stores or online stores, or even if it's um, a, a travel company, if we're seeing major discounting between, let's say, Virgin and Qantas, that would be a signal for me to sell both of those stocks. Yeah, nice. So I think I don't need convincing that uh, baby bunting is is a stock pick that I'm I'm interested in. Uh, I don't know if you're still uh, if you're sold on it or not, Ren. But um, I think Mate, uh, I've been pick a- I've been sold on it since you were beating me in this <laughs> stock of the year competition. <laughs> Look, uh, I think a really interesting and fascinating insight into just generally how reporting season can be used as a tool to. As you said, Julia, cement your your strategy. Uh, I just want to close out. Do you buy and hold on a on a six monthly 
sort of trend when it comes to reporting season here? I'm just trying to think, you know, from a, a beginner point of view, is it something that would be a good strategy to um, look at or is it more, as you said, the underlying trends of revenue growth and earnings? Uh, it's a combination of both. I definitely reevaluate companies when their reports come out. Any new information that I can glean, which either supports or takes away from the investment case, I'll pay attention to. Generally, I find that the best performing stocks during reporting season, uh, they tend to resurface time and time again. For example, Altium has been on the best performer list for a number of uh, reporting seasons now. So definitely those trends do tend to be multi-year trends. And if I can hold on to a stock for you know forever that would be fantastic but if the tide turns I'm pretty quick to get out and one final question sorry on earnings you know we have a a few listeners write in and ask would it be a good strategy to buy and sell prior to the earnings result being announced almost in anticipation of what the result might be what what are your comments around that Look, I think if you're anticipating a negative result, then definitely <laughs> sell out um, before reporting season. But generally, uh, the best performers, they tend to be the ones that continue to outperform. So yeah. um, if you sell out before reporting season, you can miss out on some of the best gains for the 12 months. So if you're confident on the stock and the investment story, I would stay in. If you're uncertain, you know, sell out at 50%. Yeah, nice. Love it. Well, uh, we've got two choices now. Mine, which is a trade idea, or Ren, we're going to move overseas to the US. What would you like to do? Why don't I go and then we'll finish with your trade idea? Okay. Take it away. Okay. So, mine is a little bit controversial and not, not the least of which because we just did an episode on ethical investing. So, uh, I'm so curious. I want to put that caveat right at the front. The company I've chosen is Raytheon, New York Stock Exchange ticker RTN. And for those that uh, aren't familiar with the company, it's in the uh, it's a defense contractor. It's essentially a weapons manufacturer. So highly unethical. The reason that I chose it was I, I just started doing some research on it, and I figured. It was an interesting company based on what's going on around the company at the moment. And the reason I started looking into it was because Donald Trump has had some issues nominating a Secretary of Defense, the head of the US Defense Force, as the name suggests. He tried to nominate a former Boeing executive, and then that nomination fell over. And so he's landed on a former Raytheon lobbyist, Mark Esper is his name. And so reading about this former corporate lobbyist who now runs the Defense Department got me thinking about what that will do for the company. And that got me researching the company and here I am today. So definitely not a buy or sell recommendation, more just uh, a company that I found fascinating in an industry that I knew nothing about and I'm interested to hear both of your takes on on the company. So Ren, does that mean you think that the US is headed for war? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think these companies do particularly well obviously in wartime but they do particularly well when there's tensions heightened. And I think if we look at 
Iran um, and the Middle East at the moment, if we look at the ongoing stress that North Korea is causing, and if we look at the tensions in the South China Sea, I think regardless of whether the US is going to war or not, there's enough defense hawks in the US that think they're going to war, and they're probably going to be upping their procurement of, uh, of weapons. That's... That makes sense. I mean, this is a really interesting company. There's a resilient portfolio there, lots of international exposure happening. And I guess um, a lot of the world is pricing in the possibility of a US recession. And generally during weak economic growth, you not only get a fall in interest rates, but hopefully a rise in government spending. So that could be things like defence, which um, Raytheon is involved in. Um, or it could be things like infrastructure, which has been popular as well. So, yeah, I like the um, thinking behind that. What do you think, Bryce? Yeah, so, Ren, love, love the, the choice of uh, going overseas and really liked the insight into how you found this company and then um, dug a bit deeper. I have no idea about it, to be honest, until we spoke about this prior to the show. So I'm wondering, where does Raytheon sit relative to its competitors? Does it hold a monopoly? Um, you know, ha- where is it in the total market? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And let me, let me give a bit of a spiel and uh, come to that answer in a roundabout way. So, <laughs> so, so Ray, Raytheon is one of the biggest companies. It's not the biggest. Uh, Lockheed Martin, I believe, is the biggest defense contractor globally. Uh, Raytheon is big in its own right, though. Its current market cap is $49 billion, and it did $27 billion in sales last year. And the thing with defense contractors is... They the way that they they sell is different to your traditional company that goes to customer goes to consumers or goes to businesses and tries to sell. Sixty seven percent of Raytheon sales came to through the U.S. government, and then another twelve percent of their sales came was to foreign governments, but via the U.S. government because they're making massive weapon systems. They really can only sell to governments. And because they're an American company, it really all has to go through the US government. So their sales cycle is a little bit different. And really what they rely on is government tenders. And the government, the US government will say, we need a new fleet of submarines and we'll go out to the, the different weapons manufacturers and see what's available and we'll put an order in and then, you know, that's that provider will have a contract, you know, a multi-billion dollar contract for submarines and then they'll do the same thing for missiles and they'll do the same thing for tanks and et cetera, et cetera. And you, you just have to look at uh, Lockheed Martin who has the contract for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the new plane that the US procured and then the US basically made all of its allies procure. So, for example, Australia at the moment is buying a whole lot of planes from Lockheed Martin because the US told them to, so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a different uh, business. They all seem to have monopolies in certain areas. Raytheon has a particular strength in missiles, missiles. and missile defense. <laughs> yeah, and they are uh, they sell a lot in they sell Patriot missile defense systems, which was a name that kind of rang a bell, I guess, from movies and TVs. But yeah, so so that's really their strength. 
taking a leaf out of your book, Julia, and you, you talk about what's the catalyst for change for a business. And I think there's probably three catalysts that are interesting at the moment. Um, the first one is one that I touched on, which was Mark Esper, who's now essentially a head of, head of uh, the Defence Force, which means he's leading Defence Force procurement. He's a former Raytheon lobbyist. He obviously has a lot of connections to that company, and that maybe gives Raytheon a, an advantage when they're tendering for government business. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that these businesses are very dependent on US foreign policy because they sell into the US government, but then they also try and sell into US allies, but everything has to be approved by the US government. And what we've seen from the Trump administration is a real willingness to let their allies buy weapons. You know, they've encouraged, he's encouraging Europe to buy more weapons. He's encouraging Australia to buy more weapons. He's encouraging his Asian allies to buy more weapons. He's happy to sell US products around the world. And so as morbid and, as, and unethical as it sounds, companies like Raytheon probably will benefit from the lax... Uh, Trump administration policy around exporting weapons and selling weapons to allies. You know, for example, 5% of Raytheon's total sales come from selling to the Saudi government. And people in the Obama administration made a lot of noise about stop uh, stopping weapon sales to the Saudis while they were fighting a war in Yemen. The Trump administration has no such qualms. And so you can see that that will have an, a positive effect on these weapons contractors. And then the third catalyst is Raytheon are merging with United Technologies, uh, ticker UTX, and this combined company will make the second largest defense and aerospace contractor in the world. And what you see in this business is that there's a real power law in defense contracting a lot of the benefit continues to accrue to the biggest players in the field. Uh, a stat that I pulled out, 74% of the revenue generated in 2017 went to the top 20 uh, largest contractors. And so there's probably an argument that as these companies get bigger, they insource more expertise, they can service larger government contracts, they win more tenders, and there's a real power law and the benefit keeps accruing to the biggest in the field. So I think there's probably three catalysts there that mean Raytheon is a is an interesting company to watch, uh, albeit an albeit an unethical one. Nice. Has the merger been priced into the stock at the moment? Do you think, or where's when's the merger happening? Good know? question. Don't don't know the date. It's been announced. I imagine. I'm not actually is it a sure. Done where, deal or just? I'm not sure where it is in the sort of competition regulator process. Julia, do you know? It should be around the first half of uh, 2020, I think, they're aiming for. So I guess when you do see mergers and it does involve stock, as it does in this case, there's a question of whether to get into the merger via United Technologies or Raytheon. And I guess I like the idea of getting in through Raytheon because of its missile technology and you're, I guess, avoiding some of the United Technology space, which is involved in space, I think aerospace. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a good way to play the merger as well. 
So I guess the catalyst that would change your opinion on this, Ren, is if the merger doesn't go ahead. Would I be right? Yeah, I think you would uh, You would definitely revise what you think of the company based on that. I also think given, um, given Trump has announced a separate service in the Space Force, uh, there will be a lot of government procurement that comes out of that. So, you know, if Raytheon aren't going to have, aren't going to merge with an aerospace contractor, then that probably does change your assessment of their, their future prospects. They do have an aerospace and uh, space systems division, but uh, not, not, probably not their traditional strong point. Nice, Ren. Well, I don't have any more questions on Raytheon. I think uh, I'll add it to my watch list for sure and keen to see how this uh, merger really plays out. But really good find. As I said, I think it was a really interesting uh, insight into how you found the company and and came across it. You know, a lot of um, listeners write in and ask, where do we find all this information and stuff? And it just goes to show by, you know, reading and and digging down the rabbit hole, how you can come to a, a pretty good thesis around a company without, you know, needing to know too much about it before you get started. So thanks for that. It's all right. I'm very excited to hear what your trade idea is. So <laughs> you've kept us in suspense for uh, for this whole episode. So uh, <laughs> well, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's hear it. So uh, Ren and Julia, we know we're going through some uh, reasonably unprecedented times in, ter- in terms of global markets at the moment. And um, you know, hitting all-time highs and uh, we've got central banks doing weird and wonderful things that we certainly haven't seen before or for a long time and we have interest rates across, you know, many developed countries in the negative and we have a trade war on the horizon if not it's if not already kicking off. We've got currency devaluations happening and a whole bunch of other uh, things ha- happening in the in the earnings environment across many countries and economies around the world. And so it begs the question, um, as an investor, without, uh, I guess, being too complicated and going options and all sorts of things, what is a way that you can, I guess, hedge against a fall in the share market, um, both, I guess, domestically and overseas? And so there are a number of stocks that you can choose, ETFs, that really give you the opportunity to protect yourself against a decline in a share market. So, my pick for today is Trade Idea and the stock ticker is BBUS, BBUS. It's on the ASX, but what it does is provides the investor with a way to profit from or protect against a decline in the US share market. So it seeks to, it is sort of a, a leverage, so it does magnify the returns, but it seeks to negatively correlate the returns of the US share market as measured by the S&P 500 total return. So what that what my idea with this is obviously I'm very much a sort of buy and hold kind of guy I you know thesis if if it generally changes then of course I'll sell but I mean it for the for the longer run from an ETF sort of perspective but I I do like these as a way of coming in and out of and protecting myself against um, any sort of changes in in the share market um, particular obviously a fall now I wanted to bring this up to just have a more general discussion around why this might be a good move now. And I know, you know, Julia has been speaking recently about the US head, the US market trade war and and also more importantly, the yield curve and, and the inversion that's going on. So thought it'd be a good sort of segue into discussing a few of those things. But I guess firstly, from 
the stock point of view, what are your thoughts? Firstly, that um, with a, a product like Bebus, I think you're right that you're in for a fun time, not a long time. So I think it's no. <laughs> specific opportunities. <laughs> and that's because uh, it yes. launched on the 26th of August 2015. And since then, it's actually down 75% in value. So you do mm. use it for a specific reason. So in 15 quarters of trading, only two have been positive performances. But having said that, the best quarter is was in the December quarter last year where it was up 36%. And there is a saying in the market that you go up through the stairs and down the escalators or the lift. Um, And that's certainly the case when you do see the share market go down. As you mentioned, it is geared. So if you are wrong, then you feel double the pain. Um, But having Mm. said that, if you have some tools that you can use to help you in timing, then it can be a good product to use because generally speaking, when you're looking at things going down, that things go down a lot faster than they go up. And that could work in your favor with a product like like this. Yeah, absolutely agree. And by no means am I suggesting that you put sort of 50% of your portfolio into a product like this. As you said, it is all about, I guess, more more timing than anything, but it's uh, an option out there for those that are looking to sort of hedge against what they may think is a fall in the market. But uh, Ren, do you have anything on, on the stock itself before we jump into some of the fundamentals as to why I'm thinking this? Not on the stock itself. I mean, there's only so much fundamental analysis you can do on it as a security because it really is just a tool to give you access to, you know, to the trade as, as you keep calling it. So, I mean, the, is there any reason why you chose B-Bus as the vehicle to short the US market over another triple leveraged uh, ETF? (laughs) Was there anything particular about this one? Uh, Not really, to be honest. There are a number of others through um, some other brokers that you can get that are on the US stock market. I know SQQQ is one that is, it's a pro shares over in the States. But B-Bus, I just thought from an Australian perspective, it's, it's on the ASX it's something that I, I know and have owned at various points in time. So no real bias towards it other than that. It is hedged. So I think in this climate, maybe not the best thing to be hedged, but um, essentially that what that means is reducing the currency risk. And also I think, you know, from a liquidity point of view, trading on the ASX has its advantages as well. So yeah, no real reason. Bryce, I really like this because it's exciting and look, it's easy for investors to access because as you mentioned, you can trade it on the ASX just like a stock. Um, Just I guess a word in terms of timing, I've tried a number of different tools to try and time my way and whether you use options or whether you use uh, a product like this, generally timing is quite important when you're looking at these short-term trades. And what I've found is in my experience that things like fundamental analysis as well as looking at economic indicators, they tend to be a blunt timing tool and they can be quite painful for products like this. So if you look, you're looking at a product like this or you're looking at options trading, I do think you need to know an element of technical analysis or charting to help with the timing perspective of this because the gains can be very quick and within a very short period of time. Do you... I use everything. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, from from what you're kind of seeing at the moment, I mean, mean, it's a very broad question, but 
how, how do you see from a technical point of view, you know, this, this stock plays in the S&P 500. Are there any sort of technical indicators that you would be looking at closely that I guess are suggesting that this stock might come into play at some point in the near future? Yeah, I think the volatility spiking uh, means that a product like this would probably do well in the short term. And I guess it's, it is some of those macro indicators that are, have has caused that volatility. Um, one of those is the inversion of the yield curve. And the major inversion that traders like to look at is the two-year versus the 10-year US Treasury yields. So what we mean by the inversion of the yield curve, it just means that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. And usually it's the opposite because you want to be rewarded for being in a product for a longer period of time. So this has been the case in the US for a short period of time in the two versus versus a 10-year treasury yield. This also has an impact on business spending. If you think about it and you're a business and you're looking at short-term investment plans and if the short-term interest rates are higher than the long-term ones, you're, you're probably going to put off that investment spending or there's an incentive to put off that spending until interest rates are lower and that can have an impact in terms of the economic environment as well. Having said that, we've seen many inversions of the yield curve. Um, the reason why this one gets investors a little bit angsty is because in the last 50 years there's been seven recessions in the US and all of them have been um, I guess precursed or the, the precursor to those recessions has been an inversion in the yield curve and there's only been one fake signal in that time. Having said that there's been a lag till the time to reach recession from the inversion and um, that lag is generally on average about 22 months so more than a year and a half so yes clouds are building but having said that macroeconomic indicators can be a pretty blunt timing tool when it comes to things like this so i'd prefer to use something like technical analysis so julia can i just pick up on something you said there because We've sort of seen, we saw on financial Twitter after the 2 and 10 inverted that uh, a recession is has always been preceded by a yield inversion, or at least recent recessions have been... In the US, not pre- in Australia in though. The, sorry, yeah, yeah, in the US. But not every yield curve inversion leads to a recession. When you said that there was just, there's just been one face, fake signal there since these six recessions, are you saying that... Seven recessions. There's... there's yeah. Oh, there's been seven, is that right? Yes, in the last 50 years. So, so there's, and there's only been one uh, time the yield curve has inverted and it didn't uh, lead to a recession? Yeah, so when you talk about the inversion of the yield curve, don't forget that there are many different dates you can use. You can use the three-month to the 10-year, the two-year to the 10-year, the five-year to the 10-year. So there's a whole lot of time periods that you can use. So often as analysts, we, we maybe have a handful, maybe five or six that we're watching. And if we see an inversion in all six, and that's a strong signal for a recession. And if we only see, you know, an inversion in the five year versus 10 year, that's seen as a weak signal. The Federal Reserve of San Francisco actually did a study, I think it was last year, um, to figure out, you know, which combination was a good indicator for a signal for recession. And they chose the three month versus the 10 year. 
And that's interesting because I think we saw that inverted invert actually in March this year. So we've seen an inversion in that yield curve for a substantial amount longer than the two-year versus a 10-year. So look, the clouds have been building and yet we've seen the market continue on to an all-time record high since that inversion. So I think the timing aspect of it is a key one. Um, And that's the really weird thing about the share market that you can be 100% correct and still lose money. So, so let me let me move this conversation away from the yield curve because although that seems to be the the bearish uh, indicator of the week, it's by no means the only reason to be bearish at the moment. And uh, we're we're living through a trade war, and uh, we've got tariffs being applied by the US, and we've got China devaluing their currency on the other side. Is there any other reasons that you've Look that you've looked to something like BBUS at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, I use the BBUS to trade, but it is used. Uh, it is using technical indicators, not so much macroeconomic indicators. And the reason, as I mentioned, is because um, it can be a very blunt timing tool and difficult to to time, and quite painful to hold if you're wrong for a substantial amount of time. So, look, we are pretty late cycle, but you know how late we actually don't know. It could be another. 12 months of great share market returns it could be 18 months and to hold a product which is geared to the downside like this without a, a timing tool I think can be quite painful if you're only using macro indicators or fundamentals yeah nice I think from my point of view Ren there's not really too much outside of those uh, main things going on at the moment. I mean, we've spoken about the slowdown in earnings environment. I think that's probably one other thing that I would be looking at, but I don't have the technical analysis skills that uh, Julia has. So um, I'm very much relying on macro trends to sort of make my thesis around these things. But you know, as Julia said, this product is very much all about the timing. And if we were in it from 2015, then we would have lost a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> Bryce, I really like the idea of a product like this at a time like this when volatility is increasing. For anyone mm. who wants some other, I guess, ideas on what assets tend to do well when um, volatility rises and usually when the share market starts to fall and you're hearing things about production output falling in a lot of places in the world generally they tend to be assets with a limited supply so they can be things like real estate and you've probably already heard that there's been a bit of a revival in residential real estate office um, property has been doing well for a while as has industrial property because they are limited in terms of how quickly you can get these type of assets online the other one is gold which is also relatively limited in supply or commodities which initially during a downturn tends to see quite a big bit of support and then even things like alternative assets like bitcoin what we've seen is um, there's been a bit of a a spike (laughs) um, when volatility hits and if you think about the nature of these if they're a limited supply asset while central banks are printing unlimited supplies of money i guess in the short term you you start to see a bit of money flowing through i'm not saying that bitcoin is a good investment i'm just saying that generally when you do see downturn you see those assets which are limited in supply performing better than the rest of the market. Hmm. Some good insight. We, uh, I think Ren was going to pitch gold as his investment for this 
uh, mastermind, but we ended up doing a full episode on it. So it would have been a bit of a repeat, <laughs> but um, yeah, certainly um, agree with, with what you're saying there. One thing before we wrap up, Bryce, that I'm interested to get both your and Julia's thoughts on, um, mm-hmm. you touched on the decision to go BBUS, which is currency hedged and in Australia. Did you have a think about the currency side of it or um, if you did, what, what was the sort of things that went into that decision? Yeah, to be honest, I would actually go a slightly different product. Uh, SQQQ would be the one that I, w- I would go with if I was to really carry out a trade like this. This is more just about a, a trade idea and that's because it's not hedged. I think at this stage, as we discussed last episode or, or maybe the one before, I think in the environment that we're in at the moment with rates falling in Australia and likely to at least remain where they are in, in the States or at least have be higher than they are here, then I can see our currency continuing to underperform against the US. So from a returns point of view, I, I would probably prefer to be in one that is uh, unhedged, but this product is is hedged. So um, that's the way it is. Actually, I, I like that <laughs> one that you just mentioned even more because it's unhedged. And as you mentioned, when there's times of volatility, generally the safe haven currencies are thought of as the US dollar, the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. Um, so the Aussie dollar versus those currencies would usually weaken when there's bad economic times or when volatility hits. So as you mentioned, if you're in an unhedged product that trades in the US, you would benefit in terms of currency from a weakening Australian currency as money flocks to the US dollar as a safe haven. Well, Ren and I are actually off to Japan quite soon. So with the no dollar way. falling against the yen, yeah, <laughs> I'm watching my second bowl of ramen slip away with oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good for travellers. But anyway, from an investing point of view, yeah, I think that's another whole conversation we could have around how to deal with exchange rates and the sort when it comes to turbulent times like well, this. Hopefully B-Bus goes really well for you and you'll get to eat lots and lots of bowls of ramen <laughs> with your profits. <laughs> true, true. Or baby bunting, I don't mind. <laughs> All right, guys, well, we'll, we'll leave it there. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation and insight into, I guess, how we're all thinking about markets at the moment. Um, very sort of broad array of stocks there considering what we've had over the last few episodes around, but really enjoyed the difference in our views at the moment in terms of pitching and uh, ways of using, I guess, uh, the results period in your investing strategy and also looking overseas for stock ideas. So um, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to mastermind number four and or five, if we can remember which one we're up to. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 